The Senate has returned to Washington. The House remains on recess for another week. Either way, Congress faces a haystack of work and precious little time in the fiscal year to do it. We get an update from Bloomberg government congressional reporter Zach Cohen. Zach, good to have you back. Sure thing. And, well, where do they begin? I mean, the NDAA might be top of mind. We understand that staff has been working steadily to try to reconcile the House and Senate NDAAs. But there's a more than usually convoluted path to getting that done, too, correct, this year? The name of the game, really, both for the NDAA, the annual uh, military policy bill, uh, as well as government appropriations, uh, which something needs to happen on that by the end of the month. Both of those are still being worked out behind closed doors. The House and the Senate have come up with all of their legislative language for both of those bills. The key is bridging the differences between the House and the Senate. It doesn't seem like there's been a lot of talk besides maybe some staff talk over the August recess. As you mentioned, the Senate is back today. The House will be back next week. But they still need to figure out how to bridge the gaps, especially given the fact that the only bill that has come out of the House so far has been along party lines whereas the Senate bills are, are bipartisan. So the Senate's hoping that those House bills will start to look a little bit more like the Senate's, which will be difficult to get through a House Republican majority. Yes, right. So in the House, the funny dynamic is it's almost as if you have a Democratic bloc and then you have two Republican blocs and together they make up a majority. So couldn't it still pass if all the Democrats like it and half the Republicans do? That's certainly Democrats' argument, and I think we saw this during the debt ceiling fight a couple of months ago, where the House Republicans come up with their version, Democrats say, no way, Jose, and then they come back a couple of months later, and Democrats and Republicans come together on a bipartisan deal that has the support of not just House and Senate leadership, but also, of course, the White House. Uh, President Biden would have, has to sign these bills. And so that causes some problems for House Speaker Kevin McCarthy. There's certainly a block there in the House Freedom Caucus, including those that never supported his bid for Speaker or only did so after much wrangling that first week in January. And so the, the key will be finding some sort of bipartisan agreement that can get through both chambers without necessarily angering the parts of Kevin McCarthy's majority that he needs to keep on his side in order to remain Speaker. Right. And then, of course, besides the NDAA, there is the budget itself. And a lot of people seem to be assuming it's like being in the, what do they call it, the Big Bend coast of Florida. This thing is coming. Let's just get ready for it. And I'm talking about, of course, a lapse in appropriations. And what is the shape of that likely to be? Because we've seen them last as long as a month and as long as a few hours in recent years. Well, certainly full-year government funding bills for fiscal year 24 are not going to happen by the end of the fiscal year, fiscal 23, which ends in a couple of weeks. As I mentioned, the House has only passed one of its 12 appropriation bills. The Senate has not passed any of them, although the Senate Appropriations Committee has written all 12. And it sounds like the Senate might bring up a couple of the more bipartisan bills, not because they have any chance of becoming law as they stand, but because it would boost the Senate's negotiating positions in conference negotiations with the House. So they're going to have to go to a continuing resolution, a stop gap spending bill. Both McCarthy and Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer have discussed maybe one that goes into early December, which lines up with the congressional calendar. And that would give them about two months to hash out an agreement on the rest of the fiscal year. Right. So therefore, batten down the hatches for a <laughs> CR on top of a lapse, possibly. Exactly. It, it really, I don't think it's been decades since the Congress uh, and the White House have agreed on annual government appropriations on time. But these stopgap measures are pretty common. The only complication here is there's a number of government authorizations that also expire at the end of September that need to be reauthorized. Some of them have been negotiated in larger packages. Things like the FAA reauthorization still needs to happen. The Farm Bill, I, I think over 100 programs that expire at the end of September. And so whether there's any complications in getting those into a CR, 
are remains to be seen. But if they're able to get past this stopgap measure and then focus on the full year government funding bill and working out bipartisan agreements on those other authorizations, that could bode well for the rest of the year. We are speaking with Zach Cohen. He's congressional reporter for Bloomberg Government. And on the Senate side, there is a pretty good roster of nominations they've got to deal with. Let's run through some of those. Yeah. I mean, as long as they're still negotiating behind closed doors on appropriations bills in the NDA, might as well fill some floor time with some nominees when they can't get unanimous consent to bring those up otherwise. First up is Philip Jefferson. He's being promoted to be vice chairman of the Federal Reserve Board of Governors, the interest rate setting, monetary policy setting folks that, especially here at Bloomberg, we care about. He'll be the second ever black man to actually hold that role, the first in over a decade, uh, which is rather remarkable. And then he's got two colleagues who also could see confirmation this week, Lisa Cook, who's already on the Fed, but should be reappointed, as well as Adriana Kubler, who would join the Fed and would be the first person ever of Latino heritage to join the Fed. Then there's two other nominees we're watching, the National Labor Relations Board member, Gwen Wilcox, who's already on the NLRB, but needs to be renewed. Her term actually expired technically last week, and so that should come up probably as soon as Wednesday. And then Anna Gomez, probably cap off the week, her confirmation to the Federal Communications Commission will actually give Democrats a majority on the FCC for the first time since the Biden administration. So that's a rather important nominee to watch. And what about the Tuberville hold on the promotions in the military? Is there any sign of a crack or a way around that at all? Because it's getting to be kind of long and tooth here how long there is no chairman and on down. It's actually not just not going anywhere. I think it's actually backsliding. I think it's actually getting farther away from an agreement between Senator Tommy Tuberville, the Alabama Republican, who has put this procedural hold on any senior military promotions that usually go through the Senate by unanimous consent. He's got him on one side, as well as congressional Democrats, a fair number of Republicans, and of course, the Pentagon and the Biden administration on the other side. And so Tuberville has some supporters in among Senate Republicans for this, where he's objecting to the Pentagon's policy that reimburses troops when they seek abortions out of state, not for the abortion itself, because that would be in violation of the Hyde prohibition on federal funding for abortions, but it does help with travel costs and stipends and whatnot. The issue now is not only does the DOD not want to get rid of this policy, policy. Not only does Tuberville not want to release his hold until the policy is gone, but he's actually said now that there are a number of nominees that he's been looking at, he's been holding up anyway, and saying that he's got individual concerns on some of them for their support for various diversity, equity, inclusion programs that the Pentagon runs. And so even if you have an agreement on abortion policy, there might be some of these senior military promotions that won't get through absent a Senate floor vote. And Schumer and congressional Democrats have been hesitant to bring up some of these nominees for votes because it would create this precedent that holding up military nominees is something that can just be overridden with a vote. They would rather get this all done in one fell swoop. Wow. So that could linger on Lord knows how long. Exactly right. There does not seem to be an end in sight on this. The NDAA is a vehicle maybe to legislate some of this, but certainly from a political standpoint, Tupperville doesn't seem to be facing the kind of pressure that would get him to release his hold at this point. And Democrats don't seem inclined to give in to his demands that they hold individual floor votes on all of these nominees. And just from the point of view of someone who spends time literally on Capitol Hill and you're in the corridors there, what are outsiders not seeing with some of the members of the Senate, particularly Dianne Feinstein and Mitch McConnell, who are just visibly impaired and all? Is that just fodder for chit chat on television or could something actually happen to deal with the fact that they are having impairment because of age, presumably? 
The Senate's one of those bodies that is institutional in nature in a couple different ways. One is that senators don't like talking about their colleagues' health problems. And so it's one of those things that very quietly lawmakers will talk about. There are maybe a few that will mouth off on X, the platform formerly known as Twitter, about it. But a lot of folks tend to want to give folks like Senators Feinstein and McConnell their space to recover from whatever health challenges they have. Senator John Fetterman, similarly, when he was out undergoing treatment for depression at Walter Reed Medical Center. McConnell obviously had another health scare last week where he publicly froze when he was having a press conference in Covington, Kentucky. It's the second time, at least publicly, that we've seen this since he had a fall and a concussion at a political fundraising event a couple of months ago. And so certainly lawmakers have concerns about the degree to which McConnell, Feinstein, and some of these older lawmakers can continue to do their job, but in a body that does not have term limits. And as long as they keep getting reelected, they can continue to stay in those positions. One of the key questions, I think, coming up, especially when Senate Republicans meet on Wednesday in a private setting for the first time since the August recess, is what, if any, pressure does McConnell get to step aside or step down? He has said that he wants to serve out the rest of his current term as leader, which ends after the 2024 elections. But certainly given these health challenges, I think there's going to be more questions that he and his team will need to answer. Yeah, clinging is a bipartisan activity, isn't it? It's hard to give up the influence and the title and the prestige. This is something we've seen over the years. I remember Thad Cochran, a Republican from Mississippi, who stayed in the Senate probably beyond when you had the mental faculty to do so. There's a long history of senators with health challenges continuing to serve. The question becomes not just for voters, but for members of Congress is do those colleagues continue to have the the mental faculties to do their job? And that's a really tough question to answer. And really, at the end of the day, really only question that the senator and ultimately voters ballot box can answer. Zach Cohen is congressional reporter for Bloomberg government. Thanks so much. And we'll post this interview at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Subscribe to the Federal Drive wherever you get your podcasts. Leadership today, especially within the federal workforce, is being tested more than ever before. Everett Kelly, National President of the American Federation of Government Employees, joined Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA, to share how his upbringing in rural Alabama eventually propelled him to the forefront of thousands of union members raising a collective voice. After years of leadership with both the largest federal employee union and as a pastor, Everett Kelly reflects on his deep-rooted values of integrity and hard work. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. Today I'm joined by Mr. Everett Kelly, National President of the American Federation of Government Employees. Everett, welcome, and thank you for being here. Shane, thank you. It's a pleasure. It's mine. You first joined AFGE in 1981 during what eventually became your 30 years of service at Anniston Army Depot. We're now more than 40 years past 1981, and you've been the union's national president since 2020. How's your decades-long involvement with AFGE impacted the way you view your role now as the union's leader? The time that I spent as local president, I simultaneously spent that same time as a pastor in Alabama. I like to say that this was my training ground because as I was entering into the role of unionism, I was also entering into ministry. And so I see my role, even as the union leader, as ministry. It's never an understatement because this is what I believe. I believe that if you love people and show people that you love them, people will follow you. My business is in the business of growing people. 
Uh, and that's what I do. And I, and I think that my training as a pastor and as a union uh, leader has given me the ability to really, you know, uh, grow people because I feel like that, you know, it's my responsibility both as a union leader and as a pastor to ensure that people have a livable wage. It's also uh, my responsibility to ensure that people are treated fair with dignity and respect on the job. And I think that goes in both uh, arenas. So, so I've seen this, you know, as ministry, as I've grown through the four decades of leading people. Putting those two together is amazing. AFGE handles a massive array of issues and topics of importance to feds across many departments and agencies. What is it like being at the forefront of all those moving parts, and how do you manage it all? Well, first of all, let me give kudos to my staff, okay? Uh, Because it's just no way that I could manage all of this work and all the moving parts by myself. But I have an excellent staff that always makes sure that I'm prepared and that I'm ready. But it's exciting. It's exciting to be out in the forefront, you know, uh, bringing people to the realization that they have something to fight for. But again, I cannot, and please understand when I say I cannot, it's, it's, it's what I truly believe. I cannot do it without a good, strong staff. Uh, and I tell anybody that, but I enjoy fighting for the cause. I enjoy standing in front of a group of AFG members, calling them to action, and then standing back and watching that action come to fruition. Because I know that I'm not the one that's doing it, okay? They're the one that's doing it. I'm merely casting a vision, right? And I enjoy casting a vision and then watching a vision come to fruition. And it's the staff and the members that get that done. As CEO at, at WEPA, I completely and totally understand that we rely on them. It's not Absolutely. just nice to have. We rely on Absolutely. Them. As AFGE president, you often speak at union rallies and other events widely attended by federal employees. What's it like to experience that direct connection to employees? And how does that influence your leadership style? You know, that gets me excited, okay? To be standing in front of a group of AFGE leaders get me excited. To hear the words, who are we? And the chants that come back that says AFGE gets me excited. It gets my motor uh, running, if you will. And it's exciting to look at them and see the motivation in their faces when they're fighting for a cause. And and, and all of us come together and fight uh, in solidarity, fight as one, raise one voice. You can't explain the feeling. You just know that it's right. You know, I just know that it's right when I'm standing there and I feel this. And I never fail to say thank you again because I'm the one that merely cast a vision. They are the ones that get the work done. And so when I see them out there ready to go and that call to action goes out, and then I see them really begin to march on that uh, initiative. It's an energy that I cannot explain. I can explain it. I'm feeling it right now. <laughs> um, d- describe how your personal background and upbringing folds into how you function as a leader. You know, understanding that I was born in the Deep South. I was born in a little small town in Goodwater, Alabama, population 1,292 today. Born to parents that, and I hope I don't offend anybody, and I've got to quit saying this, but, but I was born to a set of parents that believed and trusted in God. 
And that began to establish who I was. I began to trust God myself in everything that I do. I, I trust God even in this situation as a union leader because my parents taught me to believe in uh, the Bible. And with that came do unto others as you would have them to do unto you. In other words, treat people right. Treat people with respect, right? Do what's right. It taught me, you know, about integrity, right? It taught me about being honest, you know, and that's what's needed in the role of a leader of this union. It's it's needed, uh, and, you know, I try to portray that. I try to portray a person of honesty and a person of integrity. And so being in the Deep South, you know, you you, you just learn those things, and that's what has helped me uh, throughout my path as a union leader. And it's always nice, that whole approach, because you don't have multiple approaches with different people or different sets of different tasks, different energy. It's it's always straightforward, yes. honest, here's the truth. Yes. And it, it's it's easy. Yes. Right? Yes. It's a lot easier than having multiple personas. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. What's one piece of advice if you could go back and tell yourself when you were starting your career? You know, I don't know you asked for one, but I'm I'm gonna have to elaborate on two. Yeah. If that's yeah. okay. Number one, I would explain the urgency of integrity a lot sooner than what I did, right? Because to me, integrity is not necessarily what you see others do or what others see you do, but integrity to me is what you do even when no one is looking. And so I I would really begin to stress that importance more so at an earlier state in my leadership role rather than the latter part. Okay, I begin to stress that more now, but I wish I had began to do that more at the earlier states in my uh, role. Secondly, I would tell myself to always, and I'm going back to my roots, always work hard and don't ever accept no as an answer, right? Because I just believe that if you want it bad enough, if you want to achieve it, you can it's all about the amount of work you put into it, right? And the and the amount of faith you have that it can be accomplished. So when I look at AFGE and its membership and where we were four or five years ago and where we are today, that's a reminder that you can do whatever you want to do if you put your mind to it and work hard enough. And one question that's always kind of interesting at, at the end of our time together is, is there one person, you mentioned your parents before, mm-hmm. um, is there one person or maybe more than one who really inspired you when you were younger that you might even think back on today? It was my grandmother, you know, with the understanding that when and when I was born, right, as I said, I was born in the Deep South. My father worked extremely hard. We didn't have a whole lot. You know, my, I had 12 siblings. And so when I was born, I was very sick. As a matter of fact, the doctor said I wouldn't live to be 16 years old. The doctor said I wouldn't ever hold a job. But my grandmother would always teach me how to pray. And she taught me about faith. And it is prayer and faith that has allowed me to be standing here today. Suppose I've been dead 50 years ago, but I'm 66 years old now. And it's all because of my faith and my belief and my prayer life. And I believe that beyond a shadow of a doubt. Amazing story. 
Thank you for sharing all of it with us, Everett, and really appreciate you being on the show today. Pleasure is mine. And this is Shane Canfield. We'll see you next time on Lessons in Leadership. Find the full podcast and future episodes of Lessons in Leadership on the Federal News Network app and anywhere you enjoy your podcasts.